Bibles, I would like to invite you um, to turn with me to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. We're starting a new series through the book of the Bible. So get ready. Hope you got your seatbelts on. We find ourselves in a very interesting place in the Old Testament. I'm not too sure if um, you're familiar with the book of Ruth or you've, you've caught a message or two here and there or, or maybe cute quotes that find themselves um, coming from the book of Ruth, but I believe, I've been praying for the past couple of months as I've been getting ready for that series to close and this one to begin, that God would use this, this book in our lives in a very special um, way. Amen? Ruth, chapter 1, beginning in verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were, I know you're going to name your kids this, um, Malon and Kilion. Klingon names. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab. That's going to be very important. And remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The book of Ruth is a powerful book. It's an amazing story. It's, it's a profound love story, even, that's going to be woven throughout the book that we'll have a chance to see in, in weeks to come. But in particular, it's, it's a story that's impactful because... It highlights for us how everyday lives can be lived out in extraordinary ways. How everyday lives, maybe you're someone here today and up till now you've looked at your life, well, I mean, I'm just me. I'm not them. And I think that what we're going to find by the time we're, we're done with this book is how no life is just a life. And how God is in the business, especially, of using everyday lives in extraordinary ways. The book of Ruth is, is a unique book for a couple of reasons. Number one, because of where it's located in our Christian canon. We use the word canon in theological terms to refer to the collection of books that make up our Bible. We have 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old, and 27 in the new. And I think one thing that's important as Christians who are desiring to grow in our relationship with God and our knowledge of God's Word is, is to understand this. You've, you've heard me say this from time to time, and that is that the, the Bible is written for you, 
but it's primarily about God. It's not my story that we're all looking for in there every Sunday. Hopefully, as a preacher, I don't preach that way. That's very, we have a term for that. It's called narcissism, right? right? No, it's God's story. And if anyone gets any help from this book is when we find ourselves, if we find ourselves at all, in his story. Amen? So that's important. And so in order to appreciate what God has to say to us in the here and now, we really need to first grasp what God had to say to them then and there. The book of Ruth comes on the heels of the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Bible, and the death, especially, of Joshua. And just before the birth of the first prophet and judge, Samuel. That's where it comes. And so you have to understand where this book falls. Its backstory really is the book of Judges. Many of the early church fathers, in fact, chose to include the book of Ruth together with the book of Judges because they didn't see them differently, and and rightfully so. We have these two books separately in, in our canon, but the Hebrews would have them included together because to appreciate what we're going to look at in the next number of weeks, you've got to understand the backdrop. You need to get the foundation, and it's going to help us even more value these special individuals that God uses, Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, for his purposes. So the book of Judges is the backstory of, of, this, particular, of this particular book. And this book comes after the close of the death of Joshua, but just before the birth of Samuel. Why is this important? Because something is introduced in a scene, in the first scene, for our consideration at the beginning. Notice it says there that they sojourned in the country of, help me, Moab. Moab. This is important because I can't assume we all understand what that term means. There's a lot of assumptions underlying that one phrase. And I'm going to show you in just a second here. When's the last time we heard about Moab? Hmm, that's right. Genesis 19. Go there with me, if you will. In Genesis 19, we have our first instance where these people are ever mentioned at all and how and why. You guys are probably familiar to some extent with the story as it's found in Genesis in chapter 19. That's where God rescues who? Lot. Remember Lot and Abraham. Lot was Abraham's nephew. And they were together for a while, but they were like two big fish in one very small pond. And they had to make a decision and part ways. And Abraham deferred to his nephew and gave him a shot at picking wherever it was that he wanted. And so he did. And he chose, huh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And he went in that direction, and Abraham went in the direction that God had for him. But it was there where Lot, after having been in Sodom and Gomorrah, where he was found in a house, finding himself entertaining and hosting, being hospitable toward, certain men. But they weren't just any ordinary men. These were actually messengers of God. It would be safe to say that they were angels of the Lord. Some even suggest that they were a pre-incarnate version of Christ. And so here, Lot is visited by these angels who weren't ordinary men. They would come in the form of men. And so if you and I were to encounter them, you would see them like they were 
men. And so they were in the home being entertained. But it was at that time, at that very same time, where the door ends up being banged. They're visited. They're visited by the townspeople who get word that Lot is not only in this house with his family, but he's in there with these men. They want them. And so they begin insisting loudly from outside of the home that these men come out so that they may know them sexually. And so this is a homosexual situation. And so these men insist again and again. And Lot says, look, don't take these men who I am hosting and entertaining. Rather, you know what? Um, how about my, my daughters? <laughs> Great, right? We're already getting off to a good start. So he says, how about my, my daughters? So Lot comes out to to want to interact with these individuals, and they, get, they begin to get rough with him. And so the angels, these men who are inside, realize if we don't help him now, they're going to go after him. And so they reach out and they pull him back into the house and save his life. And God says, through these angels, through these men, quickly, out of this town, I'm bringing judgment. Because of the wickedness that increased in this particular area. And so Lot obeys the word of the Lord and follows the leading of God by leading his family as well. He picks up his wife and his kids, and they begin making their way. But it's as they begin making their way that his wife looks back. It could have been the man too, but okay, so (laughs) I helped you all ladies out, right? So his wife looks back, and as a result of that, she turns into, help me, Pillar of salt, pillar of salt. Now, some people want to know, like, what exactly is it? (laughs) I'm going to think twice the next time I look back, right? What exactly is it about looking? It wasn't so much that she looked back, per se, as it was what it communicated about her heart. Notice, what is she looking back to? A people, a town, a place that God's done with, that God's about to bring judgment upon. And she's choosing to align her heart with the very thing that God is about to bring judgment upon. And as a result of that, she told God, she communicated where her heart was. Even though she was physically with Lot, her heart was with everything that God was against. It's not enough to come to church. There are a lot of people who carry Bibles in their armpits. They They go to services. They're around a lot of religion. They're around a lot of people who are going in the right direction. But when it comes down to it, as far as what God sees, their heart is with with everything that that community and those people are around are against. So it's not enough for you to be physically around the right people being about the right things. The question at the end of the day is, Does your physical location represent your heart location? And so she turns into a pillar of salt as a result of that. And so now Lot is with his daughters. And now they're considered nomads, people who are basically living in and out of caves. And as far as his daughters are concerned, they're wondering, wait a second here, we ain't got no men We don't have any babies. It's over for our prodigy. It's over for our generation. We won't ever be a people. We're about to be extinct. And so they come up with a very bright idea. 
And so the one speaks to the other and says, hey, um, how about we do this? I'll get dad drunk tonight. I'll sleep with him. And uh, tomorrow night, you get him drunk, and then uh, you sleep with him. So that between us, we should have a couple of babies here and get going. So they go forward with this idea. And as a result of that, they actually end up having two children. The oldest, his name, Moab. Hmm. The youngest, Ammon. Who are the two rival ancient enemies of the people of God? The Moabites and the Ammonites. And that's what we find here in Genesis and 19. So these people that we're first learning of and being introduced to in the beginning of the book of Ruth are these people, the Moabites. These, these people. There are people now, but they started as one baby that ended up populating this place. So what was it exactly that was so problematic about these people? Because everything that they were about, I mean, Look at how their origins began through an incestual relationship. Everything that they were about had nothing to do with God's plan or God's purposes or God's ways. From the gate, they were bent on living in ways that were contrary to God. And so what we find is, fast forward, we come to a place in Numbers where God's people have to encounter them all over again, except it ain't just one baby now. It's quite a number of people. Numbers chapter 25. God's people at this point have been, number one, they've been delivered out of Egypt. They've seen God's intervention in parting the Red Sea and leading them across the Red Sea. They met God at the Mount of Sinai and were entrusted with the commandments of God, the law of God. They had a chance to walk with God for 40 years throughout the wilderness, witnessing miracle upon miracle, God's providence upon God's providence, only to eventually and finally arrive at the cusp of what he had promised would be Canaan, the promised land. And so here they are. God promised and said it was going to be so, They pass through all of these experiences, and they arrive. It's the eve of finally laying hold of the land for themselves and enjoying everything that God said would be theirs if they look to him. And what happens? A group of Moabite women sneak and slip right into the camp, and they draw the men from the people of God and have them whore after them and follow after their fertility gods. So what's God got to think about that? He tells us right there, Numbers 25 and verse 5, uh, verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal. Is that in the Bible? Yes, it's in the Bible. He goes on and he says in verse 9, nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So as a result of this disobedience on the part of God, here they were, 
They got delivered. They saw God redeem them from Egypt. They saw God part the Red Sea. They saw God and witnessed him feed them, protect them, clothe them, keep them, and bring them ultimately to the foot of the very land that he had promised them. And on the eve of obtaining it for themselves, they go a-whoring with strange gods, led by these Moabitess people. And God brings judgment upon them. Why is this important? This is that context. This is that context. And what's interesting is these people try to make their way to where God is leading them. But what ends up happening is the king of Moab hires a shaman, a shaman, somebody who's into divination and witchcraft. And they say, look, this is what we need you to do. The people of Israel are getting near. We need you to come up with some sort of curse and bring it upon them. Can you do that? We'll pay you whatever generous amount you need. And so this person named Balaam agrees. And so he goes and he does his deal, his thing, what shamans do. And then he comes back and he says, um, I've tried everything. I can't come up with a curse that works on them. He says, what do you mean you can't? And so as a result of that, they send in these Moabitess women to go after them. You see, the book of Judges is right here, and the book of Ruth is right here in this context. You know what God says about the Moabites as it relates to the people of God? Look, go over one book, Deuteronomy 23. You're going to see one additional layer that's important. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. There, God, speaking about the assembly of God's people and his jealous heart for his people, he says in Deuteronomy 23, 3, no what? We just saw them. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. That's the gathering of the people for worship. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to do what? To curse you. See, That was their heart posture toward you. That was their heart posture toward you. And now we come to this point where we see what the relationship is like between these two groups. Meanwhile, Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, and this whole context is growing up and emerging at this very time where corruption is increasing in the society. And we come to the book of Judges. Next book. Book of Judges. You're going to see all of this tie right together. Chapter 19. Book of Judges in chapter 19, verse 22. The book of Judges is an interesting book, 21 chapters. And it's, it's an interesting book because of not only the time in which the people of God are living, this is the time in which they're the most corrupt they've ever been. There are 12 leaders that are raised up to deal with 12 scenarios. And the, the book of Judges finds itself in this cycle that takes place again and again and again, until God finally raises up a prophet that will appoint a king. But until then, it's a time in which everyone did what was right 
in their own eyes. When you look at the word judges, you're probably thinking in our day and age when we look at judges. A judge nowadays is involved with litigation. But that's not the judges of the Old Testament. A judge, as it was understood in the Old Testament, was more like a charismatic spiritual military leader. They were a deliverer, a savior. They were someone who was anointed, filled with the Holy Spirit, charismatic, and had the ability either to lead people in the direction they should go or to rescue them out of a situation where otherwise they would be destroyed. And so God would raise them up for these purposes. They were leaders in battle and very charismatic. You, you knew them when you saw them. And we have 12 of them interspersed all throughout the book of Judges. And they would be raised up and appointed whenever necessary. And so God's people, their cycle would be like this. They would disobey God's covenant, and as a result of that, foreign oppression would result. And as a result of that, they would get on their knees and cry and ask God to deliver them. God would raise up and send a deliverer, a judge, in order to give them the victory in battle, and then they would obey God's covenant only to disobey, to be brought under foreign oppression, only to cry out to the Lord for deliverance again so that God may raise up another judge to deliver them for that situation so that they could get victory to obey. And that cycle just repeats. You know what? Our lives are an awful lot like that. There's a lot of times where it's like, I promise, I promise, I promise, God, if you just deliver me this one time, that's it. I'll never find myself. I'll never go back to it. I'll never think it. I'll never be with her. I promise this is it. But God, please just deliver me this one time. And so God, in his kindness and in his grace, like we sang about, says, okay, I'm going to deliver you. And he delivers us. And we experience for a season what it's like. But all of a sudden, we find ourselves falling right back in. And we experience the consequences. But here, God not only is communicating. not until he comes that we experience true deliverance. Not just from our foreign enemies on this earth, but from sin and from Satan and from death. It's about Jesus. But what I want you to understand is this. Look at the context in which God is having to work. I don't I don't think it's a stretch. I don't think it's a stretch to say that the book of Judges is every bit like our world and our culture in our day and age. How many hundreds of thousands of babies are being slaughtered in the womb every year in this country that we call a free nation? How many people 
are deciding to go in all sorts of ways that are totally contrary with their sexuality, with their bodies, with their lives, and wanting to take a whole country in the process to where tolerance used to be, look, we're just going to I have one point of view and one way of looking at things, and you have one point of view and one way of looking at things, and we're going to have to learn to respect each other's person, and but no for on honors. It's not enough anymore. I need to know what's in your head. How do you feel about my lifestyle? I need to know that you're not just tolerating my lifestyle. You're going to celebrate it. I'm going to watch your social media feeds. I'm going to see what you would say at school. I'm going to see how you teach your kids. I'm going to see what you preach in your sermons at church. I'm going to go after your institutions. I'll threaten your accreditation. I'll come after whatever I got to come after in order to make sure that what I value, you're going to come after. You see, that's the context that the people of God had to be able to grow up in and to follow God in time in which everyone did that which was right in whose eyes? In their own eyes, not God's eyes. It's the same thing that we see in Genesis with Adam and Eve. As soon as they bought into the lie that you can know for yourself the difference between good and evil, you can find a happy life all by yourself. You don't need God. You can break free from God and experience a life worth living only to find out that their life resulted in ruin. And that's what we're seeing here on a mass level with these people. Why is this important? Because it's in the midst of all of this that God raises up a beautiful young woman with her mother-in-law and a man full of integrity who demonstrate for us what it looks like to hold firm to your character and to be strong in your God in the midst of a society that's growing increasingly corrupt. Many people say, man, I, I wish I was living during these times when so-and-so was alive, during these times when Christianity was really blooming. But now, I mean, how can God honestly expect us to be serving him faithfully when you got all this going on at school, on campus, in my locker room, with my teammates, in politics, with my colleagues, in the corporate world, in my departments, at work, no matter where you may be. And what God is trying to show us is no matter where you may be and no matter what things may look like around you, you can be what we're going to see is found in these three special individuals, Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi, because Jesus is your deliverer. Not just any old man. Jesus is your deliverer. You and I don't have to kowtow. We don't have to allow our happiness and our joy to be driven by the first thing that shows up in our newsfeed when we wake up. You and I live by a different story. You and I live by a different story, a story that God's been weaving. Notice, in everything that I've been pointing out, which hasn't been pretty, has it? Trust me, I knew was coming. But I was like, there's no way in the world somebody's going to be able to know the context to this story. What makes Ruth so special and Boaz so special? Men and women, that story communicates faithfulness, kindness, integrity, honesty, chivalry, words we don't even use these days. They're lost in our culture. We don't know anything about them. 
but existed in both her and him. She models for us what true virtuous womanhood is. He models for us what it means to to pursue strong manhood. Not toxic masculinity, but strong manhood. And a lot of times, what we see here is a message for all of us. You don't want, you want to make a decision. Are you going to be a thermostat or are you going to be a thermometer? One is affected by its externals. Whatever is going on outside of it has an impact upon it. If you want to know what it's going to be, you got to see what's all around it. The other one sets the temperature. And everything else has got to catch up in time. Hold. And if it falls, it's going to kick on. If it exceeds, it's going to kick off. That's what we want to be. Ruth and, and Naomi and Boaz were exactly that. They saw the culture of their day. They saw this abuse. They saw what happened. And I didn't even show you what took place in Judges in chapter 19, which is where I want to end with. They lived during a time where they had a rape culture. Gang rape was taking place. They had violence taking place. They had all sorts of things that we go on. People have to ask me, you watch Power on Netflix? I don't need to watch Power. I got my Bible. I got my Bible. I got enough of that here, and it's real. I don't need to be wasting my time with more, more drama, more documentaries. No, I got it right here. But this Bible tells a better story. It speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not just a story about violence and murder and death and loss. It's also a story about redemption and life and truth and virtue and God's glory. And I want you to hold firmly to this because as we move forward in the next number of weeks, which will be opportunities to finally get into the book of Ruth, I want you to hold this backstory always in your mind as you see God's light and God's truth shine forth ever so brightly throughout the rest of God's book of Ruth. Yes, it opens up as a story of tragedy and death with the loss of her husband and her children. But there's loyalty there on the part of Ruth, who's prepared to be by her side. And it closes with a promise of joy and a birth that promises for us a king and a Messiah and a deliverer that will ultimately and eventually come. Let me ask you a question as we're closing. When you look around you at your culture, at this society of ours, and wherever it is that you spend most of your time in your given weeks, are you tempted and prone to be led by what you see around you? Or are you rather somebody who's prepared to be the difference wherever you are? You see, the problem with judges is there was no leader. There was no king raised up. We have no king. From the time of Joshua's death, there's been no king, no leader. They've been like sheep without a shepherd. What we need in all of our spheres of life are leaders. But a leader isn't just someone who has a title. That's not enough. A leader is someone who has a character, a quality about them, a value set that where 
and whenever they find themselves in any context, however much it may differ with who they are, they're going to be the difference maker. They're going to be the difference maker. That's what God wants out of each and every one of us. Men, we need more men. We need, we need the answers to our mothers of our communities, the prayers of, our, of the mothers of our communities answered. We need women who can know that there are men who are prepared to, to be there in their defense if they're ever taken advantage of or wrongfully exploited. We, we, need, we need young girls like my daughter's ages who have young men to look up to and older men to look up to and know, okay, I got a picture of what my future husband could be like because I'm surrounded by a bunch of men. I may not be that age yet, but I got plenty of models around me of men who aren't sinless and perfect, but who have a, a heart for the Lord and a desire to want to be men of integrity no matter where they find themselves. And despite what the culture may look like, however much corruption may be surrounding us, we're prepared to still be who God called us to be. And women, we need you. We need you. Not to follow or to take your cues from, from the society and the culture, but to be women who, who model what we see in Proverbs 31. Women who are strong and tender and who take their cues from God and are prepared to, to live for Him regardless of what womanhood is supposed to be or the culture says that it is. And we need men of every stripe and shade and color to be able to see those women and know that these are women who love God and who love womanhood and are prepared to find God and to pursue His calling upon their life. Not by giving up who God made them to be, but by identifying every bit with Him. You do not have to follow the cues of the culture around you. And we see that and we will see that in the weeks to come. I want to stand together with you. Let's take 30 seconds, if we could, in just a time of reflection before the Lord. Just be before Him. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we come before you sobered by the fact that here a people was who claimed to be the community of God, the people of God, and yet ultimately they were more corrupt than even the enemies, their enemies, the enemies of God. And God, at the same time that we see all of this that nobody wants ever be a part of, we see men and women who emerge shining forth a light of hope and promise. God, I'm praying right now for this group, for this church, that we would be people who make the difference wherever we are, because Jesus, the difference maker, lives within us. God, I pray that nobody would succumb 
to the corruption that is around us in our society, but that we would be people who are prepared to hold firm to our character and to stand strong in our God and to know who we are and even more whose we are, no matter what may be going on. Strengthen the hearts of the men of this church. Strengthen the hearts of the women of this church and help us to be a community in this city that can actually shine a light that needs to be lit. The Bible calls us a city on a hill. We're not meant to be under a bushel. How can anyone benefit from that? We're supposed to be salt in this earth. And so I pray, Lord God, what does salt do? It preserves. In their day and age, salt was a preservative. If you didn't have it, everything decays. Everything spoils with the food. They didn't have refrigeration. And so I believe the same is true. If we're not who we're supposed to be and who, God, you need us to be, when we're spending our days, six days a week in the world, the the society around us is going to decay. It's going to corrupt. And so I pray, Lord God, that we see ourselves as the salt of the earth. But the only way we're going to have our saltiness is if our identity is found in you and not in the very things of this world. Ground your people in the faith. Root us as one people. Help us, Lord God, to be able to go forward from here confident in our God. As God said to Joshua, strong and courageous in the Lord. That's what I'm praying for right now, Lord God. May your spirit come even now and do this work, we pray. We thank you. We bless you. We celebrate your goodness and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. God bless you. Please meet and greet.